I love you all, and it's good to be with you. I want to invite you to keep your Bible open to Matthew 17 as we listen to what God is showing us today. Matthew's Gospel is one of the four biographies of Jesus that tell the story of his life and his death and his resurrection. The four biographies of Jesus at the beginning of the New Testament And as a church, this fall we're continuing through a series of sermons in Matthew's Gospel, learning about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. Today, we'll learn something important about the role of faith. In the passage that Heather read a moment ago, The situation is this. The followers of Jesus have failed to deliver. And yet, we read about a dad who is still seeking Jesus, even after his expectations are disappointed by Jesus' followers. Consider the scene. There are... Nine disciples of Jesus. Remember that three of them have gone for a trip up the mountain with Jesus, while the other nine remained behind. And along comes this desperate dad seeking Jesus. This dad desperately wants help for his son who has been tormented by demons. Maybe this dad has heard the reports about the healing power of Jesus. There was the time when a man who could not walk stood up and began walking with a huge crowd of witnesses to verify what had happened. There was the young girl on the verge of death. There was the son of the Roman centurion. And there had been another man tormented by demons, and Jesus had set him free. Maybe this dad even knows that Jesus has included his disciples in these kinds of things. Back earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 10, 8, We read how Jesus is sending His disciples on mission. He sent His disciples on a short-term mission trip all over the region. And Jesus had given them authority to heal and cast out demons. In Jesus' design for discipleship, Following Him is not just a matter of watching other people do ministry. And Jesus' design for discipleship, following Him means being involved in ministry to others. And so on this short-term mission trip, His disciples had gone all over the region. What happened was amazing. The sick are healed. Demons have fled. 
The good news of the kingdom has spread all over. And now this desperate dad with a tormented son finds nine followers of Jesus together. But according to Matthew 17, 16, they try to heal the man's son, but they cannot set him free. The followers of Jesus fail to deliver. There's a longer account of this in Mark chapter 9. It's about twice as long as Matthew's account of the same incident. And Mark's account notes a lack of prayer on the disciples' part in this moment. Apparently, the followers of Jesus are trying to cast out a demon without even praying. That strikes me as a unique kind of arrogance. Maybe they had seen so much success in their past mission trip that now in self-reliance they see a need and they just say, oh, I got this. I've done this kind of thing before. Leave it to me. Maybe they had wrongly come to believe that it's just about saying a certain set of words. Kind of like medieval ideas of hocus pocus. If you just say the right words, certain things will happen. Or maybe they thought it was just a matter of using the right tone of voice. In their self-reliance, they thought that they could do this. But one after another, Nine followers of Jesus step up and try to heal the kid, try to set him free. And it doesn't work. See, without prayer, these followers of Jesus fail to deliver. And their experience in its own way kind of confirms the truth of an old Christian hymn that we sometimes sing. It's the hymn that focuses more on the devil than any other Christian hymn that I'm aware of. It's the hymn written by Martin Luther that includes these words. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Kind of sobering words. What if we're not up to the task of facing off with the devil and demonic powers? Here's Martin Luther's assessment. Did we in our own strength confide our striving against the devil and demonic powers? Did we in our own, str- our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. And it seems that without prayer... These disciples trusted their ability to deal with demonic forces and very quickly their striving becomes losing. Whatever hope this dad brought with him, it doesn't take very long before his hope is disappointed by the followers of Jesus. Still, 
I have a friend who likes to point out that in the kingdom of God, nothing is wasted, not even our suffering. And in this moment, when the followers of Jesus fail to deliver, when a desperate dad's expectations are disappointed by the disciples, it creates an opportunity for everybody to grow in faith. And maybe as you arrive today, you relate a little bit more with the dad who is seeking Jesus while feeling disappointed by followers of Jesus. Or maybe as you arrive today, you relate a little bit more with the disciples who recognize Jesus, we've tried, but we've failed. Or maybe you're more like the crowd, just watching with curiosity. Or maybe as you arrive today, you're more like the religious leaders standing at the edges of the gathering, just looking for an argument. Whatever brought you here today, I want to suggest that the Lord's invitation for me The Lord's invitation for you, the Lord's intention for us as a church, is that we would grow in our faith. This story of when the disciples failed to deliver, it invites all of us to grow in our faith. This story, as it unfolds, has kind of two movements to it. The first is when Jesus encounters the desperate dad. And the second is when the disciples have a moment to side with Jesus because they want to ask some questions. But along the way, there are these three statements. These three loud and profound statements about faith that jump off the page. And I want us to consider each of these three big statements about faith. That we read in this passage. We'll consider each one in order. And as we do. We'll consider this important question. What do we learn. About faith. As the Lord is inviting us. To grow in faith today. What do we learn about faith? Here's the first thing we learn. We learn that. A lack of faith. Is a widespread problem. It's a widespread problem. When the problem of the disciples' failure to deliver reaches Jesus, his first reply in verse 17, according to Matthew 17, 17, his first reply goes something like this, O faithless and twisted generation. When we hear that, some of us hear Jesus as if he is quoting Darth Vader. I find your lack of faith disturbing. And maybe we expect Jesus to go from here to whatever they call that force chokehold or whatever that Darth Vader does, right? But it turns out Jesus is not quoting a mythical dark lord, Darth Vader, from a galaxy long ago and far, far away. Instead, when Jesus says... Oh, faithless and twisted generation, he's quoting from the Bible. 
More specifically, he's quoting from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He's quoting from a moment when Moses is addressing the wilderness generation that saw the glorious demonstration of the Lord's redeeming power. And then in faithlessness, they wandered off in their own ways. And so Moses' assessment of his own generation was to look around and say, my generation is a faithless and twisted generation. Jesus looks around at the world in his own day. And his assessment is similar. Jesus says the Lord has revealed his glorious redeeming power. And yet this is a faithless and twisted generation. It lacks faith. And it's not just the people in the world out there in Jesus' day who lack faith. This fella is seeking out mercy from Jesus and his own disciples have failed to deliver. And so it's not just people out there who are faithless. It's Jesus' own disciples who are more like the world out there than they would want to admit. Even Jesus' own followers in his day can be described as part of a faithless and twisted generation. And listen, if lack of faith was a widespread problem in Moses' day, given all that they had seen of the glorious redeeming power of the Lord, And if a lack of faith was a problem in Jesus' day, despite all he had revealed of the Lord's glorious redeeming power already, brothers and sisters, I want to suggest that we should not be too surprised when we look around and notice a lack of faith as a widespread problem in our generation as well. Going a step further... If Jesus could look at his first followers, given all that they had seen, given all that they had been included in already, and say that there is something about them that is more like the wilderness generation that Moses spoke to, a faithless and twisted generation, then we should not be surprised when we encounter a lack of faith, not only out there in the world, but in here in the church and in here in our own hearts. See, before this desperate dad finds the mercy that he seeks in Christ, he first needs to consider the faithlessness of the world around him. Because the road to healing, the road to true freedom, the road to mercy is not found simply by following the course of everybody else in the world. According to Jesus, the road to true healing, according to Jesus, the road to true freedom, according to Jesus, the road to mercy is a road less traveled 
It's a narrow path. It's a way of faith, even in the middle of a faithless generation. So for one thing, this desperate dad learns that lack of faith is a widespread problem. Throughout his whole generation, and even among followers of Jesus. This is the first thing that we learn about faith. A lack of faith is a widespread problem in our day as well. And in a certain kind of way, like that desperate dad, we need to wrestle with the fact that we won't find true healing, true freedom, true mercy. Unless we consider a road less traveled, a narrow path, a way of faith in a faithless generation. What do we learn about faith? First of all, we learn that a lack of faith is a widespread problem. Secondly, we learn that little faith is an ongoing problem. Little faith is a phrase that Jesus uses in verse 20. The disciples pull Jesus aside after this incident and they want to ask Jesus a question, why couldn't we do the stuff? <laughs> We've done it before, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus has an answer for them in verse 20. And the answer goes something like this. Because of your little faith. This idea of little faith has been a consistent theme throughout Matthew's gospel. Is a phrase that he uniquely likes to use more than any other New Testament author. He's used it four other times. This is the fifth and final time that it shows up in Matthew's gospel. And so it's worth pausing to reflect for just a moment on what this idea of little faith refers to. Matthew shows us a variety of challenges for little faith. First of all, it comes up in Matthew chapter 6 verse 30, speaking of the challenges Of just the cares and concerns of daily life details. Things like money. And buying food. And clothing. These daily life details are presented as a challenge for little faith. If God so clothes the grass of the field. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, there's this moment where the disciples are in the boats on the open sea and a storm comes along. The kind of storm that leaves professional fishermen fearing that they're about to die. And they're confronted with this very real and very timeless experience 
You and I may not go on a sailboat any time this week. We may not find ourselves in the middle of a little storm, in the middle of a literal storm about to capsize. But I think many of us know the experience of what the disciples felt out there in the middle of that storm. They felt the fear of death in a very real and visceral kind of way. And once again, Jesus uses this very real experience, this very relatable experience, as common as the concerns over daily life details and as serious as the fear of death itself, these are challenges that confront us in our little faith. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, there's another moment when the disciples are in a boat out on the water and in a storm, but this time they see Jesus walking on the water. And what does Peter do? In what at first we think is like the most incredible display of faith ever, here goes Peter. He steps out of the boats and he begins walking on water. But as he walks along, what happens? Doubts within. Even in the middle of taking dramatic steps of faith, there are these doubts within that still create a challenge for Peter's little faith. I don't think we think of Peter as a fellow of little faith in that moment while he's out treading on the water. But this is how Jesus sees it. Even even in the midst of our most courageous moments of faith, we'll still be confronted with the challenge of doubts within. And this too will confront our little faith. And now here in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, the followers of Jesus are confronted with the powers of darkness, with a demon that won't listen, with demonic forces that won't go away According to script. And once again, Jesus sees in this not simply a problem of methodology, but a problem of little faith. It's interesting in in Mark's longer account of this section, it's when the disciples get a moment with Jesus and they say, why couldn't we cast it out? That's when Jesus says... This will only come out through prayer. Here in Matthew, Matthew summarizes it by saying that Jesus told them it's because of your little faith. Which is a clue to what little faith refers to. Little faith is... A life of following Jesus without prayerful dependence on Jesus. These two answers aren't different. Perhaps Jesus said them both. Perhaps it's lost in translation. But these two answers complement one another. Mark tells us that Jesus told them won't happen without faith. Matthew tells us he told his disciples it's because of your faith. Little faith. 
What is little faith? It's a life that attempts to follow Jesus without prayerful dependence on Jesus. And it's interesting, as we follow this journey of the the disciples, the followers of Jesus, Jesus teaches them about how they can trust the Lord. That's what faith means. It's trust. It's relationship language. Jesus tells them, you can trust the Lord. You can have faith in Him for the the details of life that you're so concerned about. Even things like how you dress and what you wear and how you're going to buy food for your family. You can trust the Lord for that. You can have faith in Him. But watch out for the challenge of little faith that will lead you to run scared. Instead of relying on Jesus, instead of relying on the Lord. He talks about the bigger issues like the fear of death. He talks about these big issues like doubts within. Here in this situation of a confrontation with the powers of darkness, the disciples over and over have had opportunities to grow in their faith, to grow in their trust for the Lord. And at times they've taken huge steps forward in the life of faith, like Peter stepping out on the water, like the disciples being sent out on mission and seeing seeing the sick healed and seeing demons flee and seeing the kingdom of God proclaimed. Huge steps of faith. But even for Jesus' first followers, so often two steps forward in the life of faith would be followed by two stumbles back. And so this issue of little faith for Jesus' first followers was not an issue that could be dealt with once for a lifetime. For Jesus' first followers, this issue of little faith was an ongoing challenge that needed to be met over and over through a life of daily dependence on God through prayer. And brothers and sisters, I want to suggest that the same is true for us. If your process of growing in your faith feels much more like a zigzag than nonstop progress, join the club. Alongside Peter and James and John, Matthew and Judas, the good one, and Andrew, and so on. Join the club. If your life of faith is more like a zigzag than nonstop progress, join the club. And keep, keep going forward. Keep seeking to grow in your walk with the Lord by continuing forward in a process of dependent discipleship. A process of relying on the Lord through prayer for every obstacle you face. From obstacles as concrete as how are we going to buy food and what am I going to wear to obstacles as deep as what about death? To challenges as internal as the doubts within that sometimes recede and sometimes grow. To the issues as external 
as seeing the powers of darkness that won't quit. In all of these, this passage invites us to grow. Not just to get into it and stay there and say, I'm done growing because I did the faith thing once. But this passage invites us to grow in a process of continuing to follow the Lord through dependent prayerfulness. What do we learn about faith? We learn that lack of faith is a widespread problem. We learn that little faith is an ongoing problem. And then in verse 20, we learn this, that mustard seed faith is powerful. Listen to how Jesus says it in Matthew 17, 20. The disciples say, why could we not cast this out? And Jesus says to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, and you get the point of the picture, right? A mustard seed is, uh, in common language, like the smallest of seeds in Jesus' way of speaking. Now there are technically seeds that are tinier than a mustard seed. Jesus isn't teaching us biology here, okay? But proverbially speaking, in the, in the idiom of his day, in the way of talking, a mustard seed just represents the smallest kind of seed that you might deal with. And he says, if your faith is like the smallest kind of seed, listen to how Jesus says it in verse 20. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And, Jesus says, listen to these words, nothing will be impossible. Nothing will be impossible for you. Wow. Jesus just gave a promise of ginormous measure about what is possible with the tiniest measure of faith. Just a mustard seed type faith is able to move mountains. I remember when I was a child, I was disturbed by this passage because I wasn't aware of anybody in history moving mountains. And I wondered if, I wondered if that meant that the teaching of Jesus was false. I've come to understand that this idea of moving mountains is not necessarily given to us so that we can alter the geographical terrain of North America. But this promise is given to us in this vivid imagery of altering geographical terrain. How would that even be possible? It's given to us to emphasize how extraordinarily, powerfully God will work through the life of one follower who is exercising faith that is just like the smallest of seeds. Barely even visible to the naked eye, perhaps. And yet full of life with the potential for incredible growth, with the potential for incredible hundredfold kind of fruits to emerge from it. 
This promise is not given so that we can move dirt. It's given so that we can see the fruit of transformed hearts and lives around the world and across the ages and here in our own church family and in our own homes. I wonder what looks like an immovable mountain to you. Hear the words of Jesus. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to what feels like an immovable mountain to you. You will say to it, move from here to there and it will move. And nothing will be impossible. Now, we probably need to say something about that. Because maybe we've heard people abuse these teachings before in one way or another. Or maybe because we have this nagging feeling deep down that we shouldn't really believe what Jesus has to say here. So to help you really believe what Jesus has to say, let me acknowledge a few boundaries, if you will, that the New Testament might place on this. How could we wrongly use Matthew 17, 20? One way would be by attempting great faith without humble love. If we attempt to do great things for God without humble love for others, then we're using Matthew 17, 20 wrongly. 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You may think you're using all your gifts beautifully, but you know what you sound like to other people? Gong, smash, crash. It may be loud, but pretty quickly it's going to become obnoxious. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Apparently, in the New Testament's understanding of what it means to have faith so as to move mountains, mountain-moving faith minus love equals nothing. Nothing to write home about. Nothing of significance for the kingdom of God. Maybe you can build your own reputation that way. But in the kingdom of God, faith so as to move mountains minus love equals nothing. So one way we might wrongly use Matthew seventeen twenty is by attempting great things for God without humble love for other people. In other words... As we seek to put Matthew 17, 20 into practice and as we seek to rely on God in daily dependence through prayer and seek for things that we once thought impossible to happen through prayer for the sake of his glory and his kingdom. Let's do it with attitudes of humble love for other people. But the second way we might wrongly use Matthew 17, 20 is by demanding an easy way instead of the Lord's way. 
Now, when I say it like that, I also need to acknowledge that the Lord himself says that his yoke is easy. I'm not promoting suffering for suffering's sake or anything like that. But if we take a promise like Matthew 17, 20, and we take it to the Lord and we're just like, Lord, would you make my life easy for me? Very often the Lord will say, that's not possible. You know how I know that? We skip a few pages further into Matthew's gospel. And we hear Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, sorrowful to the point of death. Here is our Lord carrying sorrow and grief. His way is anything but easy. And Matthew 26, 39, he falls on his face and he prays saying, my father, if it be possible, it's the same word, the same idea. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So as we seek to grow in our faith, following what Jesus teaches us in Matthew seventeen twenty, We want to believe Jesus. That if we have faith, even like a grain of mustard seed, barely visible to the eye, but full of potential for growth. If we have faith like that, we're going to use it in ways that are loving toward other people. And hum- humbly loving toward other people and humbly submitted to the will of our Father in heaven. But what does that look like in life? To have Faith like a mustard seed? What does that look like? Maybe we can put the question to this passage. Who in this passage has faith that can be compared to the grain of a mustard seed? Notice this first. It's not the disciples who charge into the situation and say, we got this. It's not the disciples who hear about something going on with demonic torment, and they're like, get out my way, I want to get into this thing. It's not the ones who charge to the front and throw themselves right into it, Most who, who first throw themselves into it, who demonstrate mustard seed-like faith in this passage. Who demonstrates mustard seed-like faith in this passage? It's the desperate dad. <laughs> just says, I've got nowhere else to go. And even when I've been disappointed by other followers of Jesus, I'm still going to come to Jesus and collapse in, collapse in humility before him on my knees and say, Lord, show mercy. According to Mark's longer account of this story, according to Mark's longer account of what happens if we add more details we would realize that this desperate dad is the fellow who in the middle of interacting with Jesus says to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Isn't that interesting? The one who demonstrates mustard seed-like faith may be barely visible to the naked eye, but full of potential. 
to multiply and grow and bear fruit a hundredfold. It's not the nine disciples who charge forward and say, we got this. It's the desperate dad on his knees, continuing to cry out for mercy on behalf of his son, saying, Lord, have mercy. This is faith like a mustard seed. Sometimes barely visible to the naked eye. But full of life-giving potential. And able to bear fruit a hundredfold. This is what mustard seed faith looks like in this passage. Let me ask you, what does mustard seed faith need to look like in your life? The result of this sermon is not that I want us to listen to this passage and be the kind of people who push others aside and say, let me get at those demons. I think as we listen carefully to God's word, if we're paying attention to what the Lord wants to teach us today, this passage wants to lead us to be followers of Jesus who are quick to fall on our knees. In desperation, saying, Lord, I don't have what it takes. But I'm coming to you and I'm pleading on behalf of my needs. I'm pleading on behalf of others. I'm just asking you, Lord, have mercy. The Lord is calling us to grow in our faith. The Lord is calling us to be followers of Jesus who live with mustard seed-like faith. Whose faith works like this. What do we learn about faith in this passage. Let me actually just pause for one second and say, as we think about that contrast between the nine disciples who say we got this and the desperate dad just on his knees, it should probably lead us to be a little less quick to judge others and the quality of their faith based on what we can see from the outside, right? But what do we learn here? about faith we learn that a lack of faith is a widespread problem we learn that little faith is an ongoing problem we learn that mustard seed faith is powerful and then you know where this passage leaves us it leaves us not considering the strength or the quality of my faith or your faith or your neighbor's faith it's not leading us it doesn't leave us just thinking about faith even it doesn't leave us thinking about the quality of our faith it leaves us thinking about the object of our faith Because after Jesus finishes explaining the power of mustard seed-like faith such that nothing will be impossible, where does verse 22 take us? As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And here's where this passage leaves us. Not just realizing that a lack of faith is a widespread problem and little faith is an ongoing problem and mustard seed faith is powerful. It leaves us realizing that Jesus is faithful even when our faith is little. When a desperate dad comes with nothing but a mustard seed type faith, it's barely visible to the naked eye. And the disciples all fail to deliver. What does Jesus do? He just keeps going with his plans of redemption. Bring the kid over here to me. They don't got this, but I do. He just keeps moving forward with his plans of redemption. 
And while his disciples are still trying to sort out the aftermath of this whole thing, does this mean then that we have mustard seed like faith or not? How do we grow? As they're trying to sort it all out, Jesus just says, here's the main thing you need to know. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be faithful for you. So that even when your faith is little, you can know that I've got you. Even when you don't got this. When a dad is disappointed by the followers of Jesus, he discovers that Jesus is better. And when the followers of Jesus begin to realize that even they need to grow in their own faith, what is Jesus doing? He's busy accomplishing redemption on their behalf. On our behalf. So that even when we encounter the facts of life that we don't got this, we can still be assured he's got us. You know the reasoning of Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is true with respect to the details of daily life that are consistently a challenge to our faith. How am I going to pay the bills? What am I going to wear? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things that we need? With respect to the fear of death, we lie awake in the middle of the night worrying about what the end of life will mean. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things that we need for life now and forevermore? With respect to the doubts that swirl within, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things that we need, even while we're stumbling along? In the questions of our own minds. And with respect to the opposition of the devil. It may be true. That did we in our own strength confide. All our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be. Christ Jesus. It is he. This is the core of what the life of faith is all about. Eyes fixed on him. Because he's got it. He's got us. And he will not fail to win the battle.